You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces all the shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them pretty unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America and the world are looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzerofoundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help and we deeply appreciate it. Hello, my name is John Horgan. I am a science journalist. I teach at Stevens Institute of Technology, and I am an occasional correspondent on science and other stuff for Blogging Heads TV. And uh, with me today is Lee Wenzel, who I, I think it's fair to say is a friend uh, we used to be colleagues at Stevens Institute of Technology, and then he went on to grander things. Um, he is now at uh, Virginia Tech, and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do this conversation is because Lee has a new book out that I'm hoping he can uh, talk about, but also, I miss you, man. I mean, I miss you too, dude. I used to, uh, <laughs> one of the pleasures of being at Stevens was being in my office, I'd be grading student papers or some boring shit. And then you pop your head in and give me a hard time about something. Or yeah, you know, exactly. tell, me, tell me tell me about something that you'd read and and um, you know, and we'd have a, a conversation and almost always the conversation there was some like a problem or a conflict in the conversation that we'd kind of have to try to work out. And um <laughs> Yeah, but that's enjoyable. That's good stuff. So here you are. I, you know, I conned you into doing this thing. And uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, just can you first of all tell me, how do you describe yourself? I mean, professionally. It's a good question. I mean, I'm trained as a historian of technology, um, but more and more of the stuff I write is as focused on the present as it is on the past. So I don't know, sometimes like when I'm really grand, I, I call myself a writer or something like that. You know, that's sick though. <laughs> Wait a minute. It sounds like yeah. you're becoming, you're becoming more like a journalist. Uh, well, the, the, you know, the new book definitely has that angle and my next book will too is going to be very journalistic. I don't, I'm not trained as a journalist though. And I have a lot of respect for journalists. So I would never, like claim that as a banner you have respect for journalists since since when (laughs) this must have happened since you left stevens uh yeah that's true i mean i think it's well first of all writing the book you realize how hard the work is you know like getting interviews together i mean i think there's a there's some things i don't have a lot of respect for journalists about like the way they kind of reproduce hype around science and technology uncritically Um, but yeah, the work and especially like if you're doing deep reporting and, you know, like getting multiple sources for a a point of fact or something, that's really difficult. So, so, um, you sometimes identify as being 
part of a field called science and technology studies. You helped to create the STS program at Stevens. I am sort of affiliated with it. And so I always have a hard time defining it since you're like, you know, you're, you're one of the icons of the field. So what, what is it? I mean, STS is very navel gazery or something like that in that like it loves to try to define itself and argue about what it is. And I try to actually stay out of that, those conversations, but like the way I describe it is that it's just an interdisciplinary space where, you know, people trained in the humanities and social sciences study science, technology, and medicine, you know, and usually like the moral or political dimensions thereof, not you usually not just kind of like history for its own sake, but especially focused on problems around these things. Would you say, okay, so that uh, you set up my next question. My assumption is that the field has a, a critical and maybe even sometimes antagonistic relationship to science, technology, and medicine. Is that, is that fair to say? I think that was fair for a long time. The field's been going through a kind of soul searching since like the early 2000s. Um, Bruno Latour, the, one of the biggest names in the field, wrote this thing called Has Critique Lost Its Steam? And, you know, I think it's basically about climate change, really. You know, it's like we beat up on experts for so long, scientists and experts, and, like, tried to tear them down. And it's like then you're facing global climate change, and it's like, hold on, we're on the side of experts. So, like, how do we kind of adjust, you know, our our relationship to things? But I think the thing to remember is it really comes out of the late 1960s and early 1970s. It's a kind of hippie thing. You know, a lot of the people affiliated with it we're kind of anti-authority hippies. And so that's the kind of critical edge comes from that tradition. I, uh, I recently had these somewhat bizarre exchanges with Earl Morris, the filmmaker. In fact, I did, a, I did one of these, these chats uh, with him for Blogging Heads TV. And uh, you may know he had Thomas Kuhn <laughs> as a professor back in the 70s. And actually our mutual friend, Jim McClellan, who was this wonderful historian of science, uh, who was at Stevens for a long time. He also was in the program and, of course, knew both Kuhn and uh, Earl Morris. And Morris ended up hating Kuhn, and he's hated him for like 50 years now. He's nurtured that hatred, and he has basically blamed the whole um, Donald Trump uh, crazy Republican conservatism rejection of climate change on he trip well, he, he just blaming it on Kuhn that's maybe too strong but he he traces a lot of these yeah. these terrible trends in in American uh, politics and culture back to Thomas Kuhn Do you think yeah I mean that- this is I don't really I mean I think there's I think it's multi-causal right it's really complex I think that kind of postmodernism, if we want to call it that, might be a small part of the overall picture. But, um, but yeah, I don't think it's like the cause. I will say, though, that there was a big exchange in the field of SDS, science and technology studies, around this issue, like whether post what's called post-truth society, in quotation marks, can be blamed on STS. And, you know, this is another moment of kind of soul-searching. Um, most people said no, but they would say that probably, right? So... 
it's it's tough for me. I, okay, I I think yeah. we're gonna have to come back to this because I do want to get to your book uh, yeah. quickly. But uh, let we'll so we'll come back to the the question of expertise and and yeah. postmodernism and how that can be resolved because I know you've got strong thoughts on that. Uh, but but first, tell me about your your new book, The Innovation Delusion. Hmm. Yeah. So. I think I'll, well, as a first shot, I'll just kind of boil down the argument as simple as possible. So the first part of the book, we trace, we make a distinction between what we call actual innovation, introducing new things and processes into society. And then we trace what we call the history of innovation speak. And innovation speak is how we've come to talk and think about technological change in the last 50 or 60 years. And first of all, there's no, there's no evidence that innovation speak leads to more innovation. So we've been talking about innovation more and more, but measures of innovation, like innovation's probably like leveled off or even declined since like 1970. So it's not getting us what we want. And then even more, and this is a big part of the book, is argument is that it distracts us or even leads us into delusion um, around other important activities and values And the ones we emphasize in this book, though I think there's others we could talk about, are um, maintenance and repair and just the ordinary work of keeping things going. So, you know, we reward and celebrate innovators. Uh, You know, engineering societies, for instance, all their awards go to innovators. Yet most engineers are actually doing like maintenance and operations work. So there's some kind of disjunct between kind of like, you know, the way we talk about technology and the way we actually live with it. So I've heard, and I should say that you you co-wrote this book with another guy who used to be at Stevens, another historian of technology named Andy Russell, and he also has gone on to uh, grander things from from uh, Stevens. But I've heard you guys talking about this. This started when you were still at Stevens. It was started at Stevens, talking, yeah. Yeah, and I, I've heard you talking about it for years, and it's always struck me as kind of fundamentally a critique of capitalism and, mm-hmm. and, and with like sort of Marxist overtones. Is that, is that <laughs> yeah, fair to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I think there's a real deep question about whether this innovation speak stuff is just about capitalism. It depends on how you want to think about China and stuff like that. Right. Cause it's certainly hot over there too. Um, I think that's right though. Cause it ultimately it's about chasing growth economic growth and organizational growth. Um, So, yeah, I think it's very linked up with capitalism. And I don't know, I mean, I don't identify as a Marxist. I've definitely read a lot of Marx in my days. And, you know, I come from kind of a left theoretical perspective. So there's definitely a critique of, yeah, what the elite classes are doing and, you know, how they're trying to create profits for themselves and leaving behind workers and stuff like that. I think that's fair. What, uh, I mean, so what are your takeaways? What should we do if you think that the, the sort of, you know, the innovators, the, the, the people that we idolize now in Silicon Valley, that, that would be the epitome of innovation, people like Steve Jobs, um, and, you know, they become multi-billionaires. And meanwhile, a lot of the people who are sort of holding society together, doing the work that needs to be done. Um, these would be people who used to be in labor unions, I guess, yeah. are very poorly compensated. Are you suggesting that we need, 
I mean, what, what do we need? A, like a reform of the tax code or how can we change this? What yeah. is an imbalance? I mean, we don't, we decided not to end with like a laundry list of policies just because we think that, you know, that'll change over time. Um, I mean, I think that it's, it's fundamentally about a kind of reorienting our culture's values to like see and value these people, right? Uh, the, the maintainers. And that can be done in organizations. So like, you know, if leaders get hip to these ideas and can kind of like get over their obsession with innovation or talking about innovation all the time, realizing like the, the contributions that these people are making to, um, to their organizations. I think that, you know, there's also a, quite a bit about the book about how we adopt both at the level of like federal infrastructure, local infrastructure, and in organizations, we adopt all these technologies that we don't have the money to pay for down the road. Right. right? So it's also a kind of wisdom, like trying to engender long-term thinking to think about like, what do we really need? Can we pay for it? Kind of a responsibility type thing. That also applies to like consumer goods in our own homes and lives. Um, yeah. And then there's like big questions like, you know, do we need more minimum, higher minimum wage? Do we need, um, you know, do we need to go back to unions? But we kind of leave those very specific policy questions open at the end of the book. Um, so thinking about your critique of innovation, um, I mean, going back, years i've been to i think two of the meetings yeah. that you've you've had on uh, talked that, at one of them yeah they're called the maintainers mm-hmm. uh, uh i you know w- what i love about the, these ideas of yours and andy's is that they they apply really broadly and once i started seeing things through your eyes i started seeing this conflict between innovation and maintenance everywhere one of the most um extreme examples of an in- industry that I think has, has uh, really become hooked on technical technological innovation is, is uh, healthcare. And so, yeah. as you know, American healthcare is just a God awful mess. We right. pay more than much more than any other country in the world per capita. And yet our healthcare outcomes are really shitty, you know, right. down around Costa Rica and Cuba and countries that spend a tiny fraction of what we spend. And the analyses that I've seen suggest that it's all the technology. Well, yeah. not entirely, but the technology is a huge contributor to our soaring healthcare costs. Well, like end of life. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I've, I've learned some of this from reading your stuff on, on the issue, but like, you know, end of life care is really, really expensive and doesn't like really extend our lives or quality of lives that long. Um, so I think we become very fixated on solutionism or something like that, or like, you know, technological fixes to the human condition. Um, when like maybe we get something better out of something much cheaper that's focused on, preventive medicine very boring stuff you know like cutting your toenails and stuff like that you know yeah taking care of yourself and and having people take care of you when you get older so i think that's right yeah what about i mean are there any industries that you think are particularly um dysfunctional because of because of too much reverence of uh of innovation higher education uh (laughs) 
you know, like I think we, we, you know, to give an example, like, um, universities all over the nation and the world, including Virginia tech are building these things called innovation campuses, you know, like pouring millions and billions of dollars into these things, uh, with the, the, claim that they're going to generate innovation and economic growth. And there's no evidence of that whatsoever, you know? Um, and meanwhile, it's just opportunity costs. So, you know, Virginia Tech's building a $1 billion innovation campus for Amazon in Washington, D.C., part yeah. of headquartered too. Yeah. The unholy and, alliance know, of, of industry and academia. And the Defense Department, right? Because that's where, that's where, that's why... Amazon wants to be there is because their main their main money comes from the DOD, right? Um, and um, and yeah, it's a, you know if you think of like seven hundred and fifty million dollars of that billion dollar campus is either going to come from Virginia Tech or from fundraising for, by Virginia Tech. That's an enormous opportunity cost. That you know that money could be going to this like bringing poor students to Blacksburg or whatever, you know, there's way better ways to spend that money for the educational outcomes. But yeah. So uh, here's um, another big idea that uh, it seems is um, addressed, if only implicitly in, in, uh, in your writings about, uh, about innovation and maintenance is progress. So mm-hmm. I, I'm just, I'm just curious to know, I don't know if we ever had this conversation about progress. Uh, you and I had a mutual friend at Stevens, <laughs> yeah. this wonderful grouchy philosopher named Gary Dobbins, uh, yeah. who was really, I mean, he, he should have born, been born a couple of thousand years ago. I think he wanted to be yeah. born in ancient Greece and he really regretted being part of Mane- modernity and and uh and he i I once had a debate with him Mm. the title was is progress real and gary argued Uh passionately as i'm sure you know that there is no such thing as as uh progress life does not get better humans certainly do not get better in the moral sense and i'm i'm not sure where you fall in this debate I think that's a really tough one. Uh, I mean, I think there's obviously technological and scientific progress. There's that's, you know, without a doubt. And I, you know, I've more and more, I've been telling students, I have a, um, a lecture I use in most of my classes called modernity equals cheap crap. And it's just about like the rise of mass production and like Walmart and target and Amazon and how we can just ship all this stuff to our house, you know? And like so much of mo- the like quality of life in in modern times is about the, how we made things cheaper. You know, like more than fifty percent of poor people in the United States have air conditioning today, and it's not because it's not because our social welfare policies have become more generous. It's because we've made air conditioners way way cheaper. You know, like they're you can pick them up for nothing. And so um, that kind of progress is like, you know, there, I think there's, there's no doubt. And then, um, uh, you know, then, you know, then you get into really deep questions, like, is there not like moral progress in the sense of like, ending slavery, the civil rights movement, 
gender, you know, like, um, you know, women's rights and, and gay marriage. This is, you know, Gary and I would go, we'd have endless debates about this stuff. Um, but I think part of the, you know, to go back to the book, part of the issue is if you look at, if you do run a Google Ngram, so this just search it, like looks at word usage over time. Use of the word innovation has been going up and up and up since like the sixties, basically, basically mm-hmm. post-World War II. And I don't, I haven't run the new, run this word with the new Ngram that's been updated to the present, but it used to be at least use of the word progress started going down in the late sixties and early seventies. Huh. And part of Jill Lepore and, you know, and Andy and I, uh, and a, a couple other people have been arguing that innovation actually became a substitute word for progress. Hmm. And that's why so many people treat innovation like it's a good in itself, even though like, you know, we say like crack cocaine and opioids are innovations. Like it just means new shit. Right. Um, and, and so I think we use it as a substitute word because talking about moral progress is way more difficult in our society. Uh, you know, with, when we have religious conservatives and, you know, all kinds of different cultures, what exactly moral progress would look like is hard to say. So then it's like, well, we'll just let the technology take care of it for us or something like that, you know? Right. If, well, I would assume doubling you in lifespan, this is, I would try yeah. to pin this up with Gary. Yeah. Uh, doubling human lifespan, that's got to be good. And Gary would say something to the effect of that's just twice as much pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think Gary just has a, a very specific definition of, mor- of moral progress, which can only happen at the individual level. So it's just like, it's a conflict of definitions as much as it's anything else, you know? I, I mean, so I'm sort of a, a classic bleeding heart liberal with, you know, a little bit of psychedelic hippieism right. mixed in. But I... You know, I was really gloomy when I was a kid. I thought I was sure there would be a nuclear war by the time yeah. I was, you know, 30 or 40. And uh, But then I had children, and I became a professor. And so I, I sort of felt as though it was my duty to be optimistic about the future. And especially when Obama became elected, I just sort of saw this, you know, humanity marching. Yeah toward a future of peace and prosperity and justice. How's that been feeling the last couple of years? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> I know. I still, my, my faith is so strong that I still think of this, you know, the Trump era as a uh-huh. kind of a, like, a, like a, an attack on our immune system that is going to leave us stronger when we're done. But um, I, again, I, I'm just curious about whether – you also have that idea of progress as being almost this inevitable force and moral progress. I'm talking about, you know, more rights, more freedom for people. I don't know, man. Like when the pandemic started, I I started doing this reading of deep history, like history of the ancient world, uh, you know, and started reading, I had this whole project reading about kingdoms and empires, basically from the beginning of time, you know, beginning of humanity. And so many civilizations have come and gone, you yeah. know? Um, and they thought they had it too, you know? We can talk about Ashoka or whatever in India. And, you know, that he was a Buddhist. There was moral progress happening. Things were improving. Then people die and people start fighting each other and, like, it goes away. So, um, 
if, if, if it's true that something has, there's like some kind of change and now we're on this like line of improvement morally, I think we would have to explain what exactly the, the, that change is right. Cause it's not, you certainly can't apply it to all these other periods in history where like civilizations come and go, you know, they get good, they get bad. I'd say that the, uh, the, the big broad change, <clears throat> and it's of course not universal, but uh, the, the really huge changes happened over the last century and it's the spread of democracy. So depending on how you define democracy, um, there has been, uh, you know, there, there was a fraction of the world lived under a democratic regime, even like a hundred years ago. Um, and then you had uh, totalitarian um, Russia and the Nazi regime and Imperial Japan, you know, these, these uh, uh, states that were very undemocratic, they were, they lost Mm-hmm. And democracy has spread around the world. So I'm, again, you know, I'm just exposing my naive liberalism here. To me, that's, that's the big change. That's what makes it different from um, any of these ancient civilizations, which were very far from being democratic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you read this book, Democracy for Realists, yet? I haven't. Oh, I think you would like that. I would love to talk to you about it sometime, too. But it, I mean... There's ways of studying democracies that makes it look pretty dang bleak, you know, like if you study like what people know about policy issues, the answer is nothing. Um, And it's even worse than that. It's like people don't even know what their own party positions are. So if you ask like Republicans what the Republican Party platform is, they get it wrong left and right, you know. Um. And, you know, I think you see this alternative view in, like, debates around tribalism, so-called tribalism today, you know, especially with, you know, and this leads to you wanted to talk about the Social Dilemma movie at some point, Um, you know, like, how social media plugs into basically, like, these different warring factions and kind of stirs up their pre-existing passions or something like that, you know. Um, So that's, you know, like... I think I have trouble being optimistic about democracy, especially when it comes to issues like climate change, frankly, you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. That, I, I totally forgot about the social dilemma. That was what, that was a reason why <laughs> I asked you to do this because you were trash talking that online. That's a, that's a great segue. Uh, so uh, social dilemma is this, this documentary that came out on Netflix pretty recently. That's looking at big tech, not just social media that the focus mm. is sort of on that, but it's sort of big tech, um, what's sometimes called surveillance capitalism, um, and the insidious effects that it has. Uh, yeah. and it's, it's, it's a mix of, um, talking heads, people mainly who are from the tech industry and yeah. some of whom had very high ranking positions within some of the biggest companies like Google and Facebook and, and, you know, they, they're, some of them are expressing their regret at what they've created. And it's also yeah. mixing in these dramatizations. Yeah. Where there's a, there's a family portrayed by actors and um, you know, some bad things are happening to them because of their addiction to, to their smartphones. And yeah. I, I thought it was really powerful, especially the part with the, uh, the talking heads 
Um, and I wrote a column about it and I posted that on Facebook and then you reacted, you didn't like it so much. So tell me, tell me what your problems were with the documentary. Well, I think that they're talking in general, they're talking to people who are very close to the tech industry, um, or come from the tech industry. And so they're bought into the hype of the tech industry, mm. you know, like I felt like you're, you the thing you wrote about was like not Horgan enough for me. <laughs> um, because I feel like you're such like, you know, if you look at your early work, it's such anti hype around science, you know, um, like complexity science or whatever, you know, the various things you went after it. And I feel like the problem with this movie is that it really buys into the, the, you know, the argument that Facebook is really powerful over our lives and can like control us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's even like, there's this one image, this one animated image where there's like their fingers are above us, like manipulating us like little puppets, like marionettes. Yeah. And I think the research, you know, like if you look into, um, research on online advertising it's the click-through rate is terrible you know they cannot induce us to do things yeah um yeah and i just feel like the whole movie is kind of premised on around that their power to influence us and there's no there's just no evidence for that and so i feel like you know sometimes i feel like movies and books of this nature are almost like they're like created by the online advertising industry to like sell its power you know it's like oh it's scary you know but it's like no you know like i think we can talk about how social media fits into all kinds of terrible stuff right now like QAnon and the way our politics have become very fractured but that's not about facebook's or any company's ability to manipulate us that's not the story Um, it's interesting i i um yeah, I thought well one one red flag that that was um raised for me was realizing that at least two of the most prominent talking heads have are now invested in um products uh that try to limit your yeah, your you know, your yeah. time on social media. So it's like they've they sort of monetized yeah. the, their complaints, which is, which is, you know, it's the wonderful thing that capitalism does. It turns critiques yeah. in, into uh, just another commodity. Yeah. Um, and you're right. You know, it, it, what you're saying about, about um, these warnings being at a, 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 like a perverse kind of advertisement for the industry. It, it reminds me of some stuff that I've written about the pharmaceutical industry mm. where you have you had a book like listening to Prozac, which came out in maybe 1990 by this a psychiatrist named Peter Kramer. And he wrote about how these drugs are so good Prozac mm. and these other antidepressants that they're changing what it means to be human. Oh yeah. And, and I, that. you know, and I, I said, and, and so he made it, you know, it, as though he was really worried about this when yeah. the whole book was just an incredible advertisement right. for these drugs, all these, I could imagine all these people saying, um, you know, you're saying that I'll be better than well if I take this pill, right. right. Uh, that, you know, I'll be so happy that I won't, it won't be really me anymore. Right. Some of that shit, you know? uh, well, 
Yeah. Yeah. I see this, you know, this is, I have a paper that I will, uh, it's the only thing I haven't released before uh, going up for tenure. Uh, but it's like, I have it outlined. It's just like so potentially controversial that I just don't want to shoot myself in the foot. But the point of the paper is that I see it in my own field, right? Uh, my own field, there's these movements called like responsible innovation. You know, it's all about making technology more democratic. They love democracy to steer it towards like good futures, right? But what I see in these in these folks in my field who are very critical of the way technology is right now is they always play up the hype around the technology. Yeah. So though like the earliest things of responsible innovation or sometimes called anticipatory governance, I can go back and I do dramatic readings of these papers sometimes just because they're so hilarious. They're on nanotech. You know, and they're like totally pushing the idea that nanotech is going to be like this enormously revolutionary technology. It's like, oh my God, it's like very risky. Everything's going to change. And we're, you, you should hire us, NSF, National Science Foundation, to like give you ethics basically about this technology, right? Like we can turn it into a business model. Right. Um, you know, and it's like, time out. Like, isn't our first job to say, like, is any of this real? You know, like all this, the hypey claims around, you know, nanotech, biotech, so-called AI today, all these things that you and I could go in and like, you know, Prozac, we could debunk like whole waves of things that were supposed to revolutionize the world. Uh, I think that, you know, the first step has to be to say like, where are we at really? You know, how much of this is real and how much of it is just like hype from industry? I'm glad you brought up AI. I think that's probably the most egregious case of any of these yeah. about, about people saying, having these sort of scenarios of doom that perversely make the technology seem much more powerful and advanced yes. than it really is. Yeah. Um, is, you know, I, I actually have thought of, I've, I've, you know, I've got this list of columns that I want to write and I've had yeah. one for years now on this phenomenon of, I call it premature ethical fretting. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, where you're, you're, you're saying, oh my God, there's this thing happening and science or technology yeah. and it's really scary, you know, we're on a slippery slope, bad things could happen and that it's actually a kind of advertising for that thing. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the reasons I never wrote it is because I was hoping to come up with some kind of catchy phrase to capture that paradox of saying something is bad, but the, the subtext yeah. is that it's really amazing. My buddy, um, David Brock calls it wishful worries. Oh, that's nice. Um, and his point is that also like, it kind of is, it distracts us from like ordinary, terrible stuff like poverty and, you know, the lack of economic growth and all these things that are like just you know, like real problems in society, racism, whatever we want to talk about. Um, yeah, I think that's true. You know, my favorite example is I saw like some some article, you know, some academic had written a paper and journalists picked up on it. It was like, is there a risk that sex robots might kill you in the future? You know, like what your sex robots like... <laughs> I don't I don't know about you, but I have a million and a half other problems before that one, you know? And it's just like... I think, you know, people enjoy kind of sitting, sitting around, like thinking about futures, dark or light, 
And it's a form of entertainment, you know, it's like ethics is entertainment or something like that. Yeah. I think I, that there's a, um, there's a, she may be an STS scholar uh, named Kate Devlin. Have you ever heard of her? Mm -mm. Anyway, she, um, I heard her give a talk on sex robots at NYU years ago. It was a conference on AI and ethics. And, uh, and she was imagining the ethical problems. If you decide that your sex robot is sentient, then is it, you know, right. You need to ask it for permission before you have sex with it. And, and this kind of thing. The thing is, it's, it's often, she was really funny. She was very witty, but you're right that it's, um, you know, then it's, it's kind of a form of entertainment uh, rather than, than a serious intellectual endeavor, you could argue. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, if you look at technology and economic growth in the last 30 or 40 years, like growth has not been happening that high. Productivity's not been changing that fast. There's a lot of long-term joblessness, non-participation in the workforce by young men, for instance, who are playing video games instead of getting jobs. There's this whole, there's this book, Deaths of Despair by Case and Deaton out of Princeton about like, it's mostly about non-college educated white people who are like killing themselves either by suicide, alcoholism, opioid addiction, all these things. So, I mean, I think the problem is, is like, so that's like a declinist kind of picture, right? It's like, in fact, there's not a lot of technical change and a lot of parts of our country are declining and people are living these really sad lives. Yeah. And I feel like this, this high tech focus kind of hypey stuff is just like a distraction from, you know, our actual reality and the, and the challenges that we face. AI is not going to save us from this, you know? It's not going to save us, and I don't think it's going to be our doom either. Yeah. It, unless you think of AI as a tool for making uh, <clears throat> making online av- advertising and and manipulation more effective than it is. By the way, you sent me a piece in Wired in mm-hmm. response to my my um, you know the piece I wrote on on social dilemma yeah. was called uh, Big Tech. Um, out of control capitalism and the end of civilization. So, you know, yeah, it was, it was a little, it was a little over the top, but I think, I think people should be, ex- should be excused for being alarmist these days. Uh, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, in a month from now, I mean, things, so I should just let people know, I'm not sure when this piece is going to be aired, but yeah. it is what, like October 16th or 12th. No, it's October. The 12th. Okay. Um, you know, a month from now, maybe the world is going to look really uh, just fine, although I doubt it. Anyway, this piece <laughs> that you wrote, you sent to me was in Wired, and it was on, it was sort of laying out what you said before, that the, uh, that that big tech is actually built on a house of cards, that the yeah. uh, digital online advertising, it doesn't work very well. It's, it's hidden behind all this um, sort of technical, uh, stuff that yeah. makes it very hard for people to figure out um, exactly how effective their ads are. And that at some point it might, the whole thing might collapse. Yeah. So that was, I hadn't read that before. And um, I feel like was, it's a, it's uh, a genre in my, on my Facebook feed at least where friends like screenshot and then post ads that they're getting 
from Facebook that are just like laughably off base, you right. know? Um, and you might say, well, maybe Facebook actually knows that you secretly do this to have this fetish that you don't even realize you have or something like that. But I don't think so. I just think these, you know, the algorithms are stupid. Um, the ads, yeah, are just often shot at people. They're not really, don't really fit. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's big questions there. I guess the reason why I found the documentary persuasive and alarming was just because it's undoubted. It, it, there's no doubt that the world is awash in, in, in misinformation more than yeah. ever in my lifetime, certainly. And the, uh, the kind of siloing of people in their own little false fake news yeah. bubble is also unprecedented. I right. mean, you, know, you can look back and, and people had partisan newspapers 50 years ago and, yeah. and somewhat, I guess, not quite so partisan media. Actually, well, I think the late, newspapers in the late 19th century would be the place to look. I mean, there's like really crazy false news there, fake news. Right. Uh, you know, when every little ethnicity had their own newspaper, there was all kinds of conspiracy theories and paranoia. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, so I think that the, you know, one, and this goes to that democracy for realist book I was telling you about is, I mean, I think there's an alternative explanation of what we're seeing, which has to do with how, like the connection between human psychology and how social networks operate, right? We've always been in these kinds of groups of like-minded people, although that's even gotten more extreme over time as the parties have become more conservative and more liberal, right? They've become more sordid is the way we, um, we've always had that. Now you give those like groups of like-minded people, like information that's only, only they're passing around to each other. Right. And, you know, you see kind of like conspiracy type paranoia stuff on the left and the right. I think it's worse on the right for a variety of reasons, but I see my friends on the left say crazy things like Trump doesn't have COVID and it's all a hoax and, you know, Trump's going to do a coup anytime now. And like, you know, there's, there's crazy stuff on both sides. So, I mean, that explanation looks more like, you know, you give these apes with language and social networks, like these crazy information machines. And then you just look at what happens, right? It's not about Facebook manipulating us. It's just about us being kind of crazy to begin with. (laughs) Okay. Um, I, you know, we don't have, we're, we're, um, we don't have uh, infinite time left. So I want to make sure I come back to the question of experts. Oh yeah. You wrote this piece for the Washington post and was it April, April or May? Yeah. Or maybe March. It was early in the COVID thing. Okay. And um, so just give us the summary of, uh, of that piece. Well, I mean, I think it was, (laughs) that piece is very much of the week or two that it was written. Um, the argument, and it goes back to what we were saying about STS and lack of faith in experts and postmodernism and stuff, is that there's been an attack on expertise from the right and the left since like the 1960s, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been declining trust in government and, and you know, I would say experts too um, for, for all during that period. And then for a brief moment at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like people were mostly listening to expert opinion, right? Like there was a time when um, 
when, yeah, when, when folks were staying home, both parties were staying home for the most part. And so, you know, it was just like a kind of like, wow, how did this happen? Uh, kind of thing where we're actually listening to experts again. Uh, you know, and I think it was naively hopeful that would continue. Although, you know, I'm not surprised that it became highly partisan in the, in the way it has. So you wouldn't write that same. No. Say no. Um, no. I mean, I, I would still say, I, w- I wouldn't write it differently now. I would still say that what we're seeing, what I would say is that what we're seeing on the right with the anti-mask protests and Republicans having a different view of Fauci and all this stuff is a continuation of this attack on expertise that's been going on for the last 50 years or so, you know? Um, what was happening at that moment was that people were actually listening to expert opinion. So, I yeah, this 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 issue is really complicated yeah. for me uh, because it's so entangled with values and politics. So you're right that I think the you know climate change sort of uh, really forced some postmodernists to reconsider their views. Yeah. And, you know, because it's possibly this existential threat. And so our disbelief of it, our distrust of the of people like James Hansen, who've been saying for decades, this is a serious problem. We've got to we've got to do something about it. Um, you know, could, I don't yeah. want to be alarmist, but could cause serious problems at the very least for uh, for humanity. The problem I have is that as a science journalist, I see I see fields where the expert consensus is, I think, wrong. So, for mm-hmm. example, and one of the worst examples is um, is uh, psychiatry. Okay, sure. Where, you know, where you've got the the rise of psychiatric drugs. You know, I already mentioned uh, uh, Prozac, the, the sort of the antidepressant era, and yeah. um, you know, my reading of the literature, and I've just interviewed somebody recently about this, uh, a critic of um, the pharmaceutical industry and its links to psychiatry that these drugs don't work very well yeah. and that on balance they make they may make a lot of people sicker yeah. um, i also see problems in the cancer industry i've written a lot about oh, yeah. that that the you know that there's a there's a huge gap between the hype that you get from the industry and the actual outcomes for for uh people yeah. and so you can't just say, and I've I've written about this. You can't just say we've got to listen to experts, and if you're not no. an expert, shut the fuck up. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> because the experts can be wrong. Sometimes they're yeah. actually corrupt. They're wrong because it it profits them to have to peddle a point as a particular point of view. Totally agree. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's just really complicated. You know, I mean, I think you can say, well, what would happen in an ideal world versus like what's plausible right now you know i mean ideal world i think that and i i've talked to you about this guy steven turner and you know if people have questions about this they can drop me an email or whatever but turner has this nice essay on experts and he says it should be about efficacy and in you know evidence that you're even have efficacy right so like physicists can make missiles you know like so you should trust them to make missiles if that's what you want to do um but I think a lot of the fields that you're talking about, they don't have that evidence at all. What They do have the veil of expertise and authority, though, right? Mm-hmm. And then so, like, I think that it's just very messy where you have, like, 
there are people I think we should put trust in because they've done their work and it looks pretty clear that, you know, something some way. And then you have these whole arenas of experts in quotation marks. Innovation, by the way, is a great example of, you know, BS innovation experts, um, you know, where people are making claims and, you know, acting like experts, but they don't, they're not, they're not actually experts in any kind of deeply meaningful way. So, by the yeah. way, I, I was just reading your bio on the Virginia Tech, or no, I guess maybe this is your personal, your personal website. And um, you mentioned that you worked in psychiatric hospitals for several years. Yeah. I don't, I don't maybe you mentioned that uh, in one of our conversations at Stevens, but I don't ever remember it coming up. Mm. Has that, how is that affect, you must have strong feelings about psychiatry and care for the mentally ill yes i do i worked i worked as an orderly for five years um i was a nerd when i was in high school so i read a lot of rd lang and foucault like in my senior year of high school and so i wanted to see if they were right about like psychiatry basically and whether it was just a system of oppression is how they kind of cast it so i got a job in a psychiatric hospital to kind of like test their hypothesis or something like that I think what you find is that there are people who are really sick, you know, who are psychotic and stuff. And actually psychosis is interesting because I saw a lot of cases where it improved with chemicals. Hmm. Um, You know, so there's, there's some pretty clear examples of where, you know, at least in the short term, it it was, it worked miracles. Um, But then I think what, you know, I especially worked with teenagers for most of the time, both in long-term and then short-term care. And I think you just see how, like, the in the hospital setting, the psychiatry is so caught up with, like, the police state or however we want to think about it. It's just another way of, like, housing people before you put them in jail. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I just saw a lot of bad caregiving. And in the hospital setting, it's all about, you know, how you make profit as a hospital is by giving shitty care. It's by having people like Lee Vinsel, who just had, like, a college degree in philosophy didn't know anything about like you know really you know I wasn't trained to do what I was doing and no you know a lot of other people around me had even less they had high school degrees and they were orderlies so I mean I think that in that case it's just like you make profit by having people around who don't really aren't experts you know um so yeah it's pretty bleak it was a pretty sad I might write about it someday um but I've uh, do you know um this guy Robert Whitaker, uh, he's he's a journalist, uh, science mm-hmm. writer, who he wrote. Um, he did a big series for the Boston Globe on um, on the care of the mentally ill, and that turned into a book called Mad in America. And uh, it's this pretty strong critique of mental health care in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he followed that up with a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic. Uh, which came out about 10 years ago, which actually made the case that it was sort of a statistical argument. He looked at disability uh, payments for severe mental illness and, and charted that along with the rise of psychiatric drugs. And he thought that there was a causal relationship that the more drugs uh. people over time and in the aggregate, and, you know, of course, individuals, huh. Uh, will respond differently. Some actually benefit from the drugs, but the big picture is really bad that all these drugs, these are the antipsychotics, anti-anxiety and anti, uh, 
depressant the present, drug, yeah. that they're, they're not good for us. The reason I bring him up is because I was sort of wondering what he was up to. And so I just did a Q&A with him for Scientific American, and it turned into huh. a huge thing, 5,000 words. Uh, yeah, scientific, Siam was kind of shocked when they saw how big it, it <laughs> is. But that's going to be published in the next couple of days. Cool. Uh, I'll send you a link when it's when it's done. But he, um, I, I said, I, have you, your views evolved at all? And he said, uh, you know, have you softened in your your critique of the drugs? And he said, if anything has gotten worse, he said, I know some people do benefit in the short term, but not very many. And yeah. over the long term, uh, people who are put on uh, antipsychotics for good which is what the standard treatment is now for schizophrenia in this country. Their outcomes are worse than people that are just put on them temporarily. The psychosis ends and then they have some other form of non-pharmaceutical care. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, but I've also learned from stuff you've written before. I mean, it's like, the question is like what the alternative is, you know, because like, you know, I think there, there's a study I know you've cited before that, all forms of therapy are basically equal or something like that, you know, that you can't demonstrate different outcomes for different CBT versus this versus that. Um, So, you know, these are really difficult human problems. And I just don't think like there's a, you know, life is suffering, John. And it's like, I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if we have like a clear way out other than to give everybody therapy, but how are we going to pay for that? Yeah. Just (laughs) right. Um, I don't know, more compassion and uh, a little bit more money being paid to these problems. As you probably know, um, the the biggest place where the mentally ill are institutionalized now is not mental hospitals, it's prison, uh, mm-hmm. jails and prison. Um, yeah. I think uh, I've one of my students just said in a paper, I don't know if it's true, but uh, that uh, the Los Angeles prison system is the biggest population of institutionalized um, mentally ill people in the world. Sounds right to me. Yeah. Um, All right. So in the time that's left, let me get really, uh, let me get, uh, let me ask even bigger question. Um, Are you, are you a person of faith? What's, do you believe in God? No, I, I used to be a churchgoer when I, when I lived in New Jersey, I would go to lefty Episcopalian churches. Um, and I found that useful at the time. Um, but I, I, since I lost, like, since I lost faith in God, I've never really been able to like go back to it. Even if, even though I've really tried, you know, these days I'm more, I'm more along the lines where you're at. I've been doing a lot of meditation and I read a lot of Buddhist stuff and listen to Buddhist podcasts and stuff. I find that more useful because at least the versions I do, there's less metaphysical baggage to buy into, which means I'm not like into Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, where there's like maybe even more metaphysical baggage to buy into. Yeah. So, so, no. so you look to it as, so the pro. I mean, you know, I've, I, I've had problems with, with Buddhism. Um, yeah. Because it seems to me that it, it's too much of a philosophy, two problems. One is it's kind of a philosophy for, and this is going to irritate some Buddhists, but I don't, I don't yeah, care. Yeah, who cares? Um, 
that it, it's sort of a, it, it's trying to train you not to care so much. Yeah. That stuff. Don't care about yourself, which is good advice, but also don't worry about yeah. other people too much. This too shall pass. You know, we're all going to be dead. The great circle of birth and yeah. rebirth, yada, yada. Um, another problem I have with Buddhism is that, uh, you know, Buddha supposedly discouraged inquiry into like the big questions, where did the universe yeah. come from and why is there so much evil uh, and suffering and all that? He says, you know, like, don't worry about that shit. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. like, you know, just grok the, the oneness of everything. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I need consolation as much as the next person. And I right. need to sort of calm myself. I get too agitated sometimes, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, dissatisfied with buddhism as well i hear you man i think um the tradition i mostly plug into is the vipassana or insight tradition which is like joseph goldstein and sharon salzberg and all those cats yeah um and it's mostly just pruned of um uh you know that like i said the metaphysical overhead for the most part though i mean they believe in reincarnation and stuff if you push them um but i think that I, I mostly am concerned with the first one. I think they would just disagree with you on your first point because they think like Buddhist meditation and compassion go hand in hand. Right. Though I think from a philosophical perspective, I'm kind of, I think that they have a hard time making that argument. And then there's a kind of like, they just make that claim, you know, that if you meditate, you're going to become more compassionate. It's like, and then maybe they'll say like, well, just do it and you'll see it's true. Uh, but I feel like there's just some kind of assertion there that is not well defended philosophically. Um, yeah. Uh, the uh, So I've had conversations with the guy who created this website, this platform that we're on, uh, Robert Wright. His, oh, yeah. His last book was called Why Buddhism is True. I so read he, it. He's combined Darwin and Buddha in this really right. interesting way. Darwin gives us the diagnosis for why our, we're so fucked up. and yeah. And, Buddha gives us um, the prescription for what we knew, need to do to to get out of it. And Bob is very adamant that the, you know, cultivating selflessness through meditation and mindfulness leads to caring more about other people. Yeah. And the problem is there have been some attempts to evaluate this empirically, which yeah. you can imagine would be difficult. But the attempts so far have not found that there's a correlation. And I like bringing up all the bad gurus. I mean, yeah, totally. dude, I would say, uh, I would love to write a book on that. Like all the sex stuff. And yeah, there's so many bad gurus in not even, we're not just in general, but in Buddhism, you know, yeah. there's all these like heads of Buddhist, you know, groups in the U S have fallen out because of usually sex, sometimes money. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, well, Buddhists have a whole very interesting discussion about this because, some of them are psychiatrists or therapists, for instance, like psychoanalysts. And they think that Buddhism, the way it's been done, kind of tends to ignore what they call the shadow or dark sides. And that you need to deal with in another way, not just by meditating, right? Like you need to face the darkness. Uh, so they have a whole interesting conversation about why this is the case. But I totally agree. Uh, one guy I listened to recently, Barry Maggot or Magrid, I can't remember how to spell his last name. He says, enlightenment isn't all it's cracked up to be. 
Uh, and it, 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 well, this is what he's talking about is there's so many people who are like, you know, really chill to be around and they meditate like, you know, crazy. And yet they're like immoral, you know, they're like screwing their students and stuff. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, to me, it just means that there's no, uh, there's no solution to the human condition. This is kind of what my, my next book is about software and like the fantasies that we put on to computer computers and software that it's going to, um, um, uh, you know, solve all our problems. And this is, it's kind of has a Kierkegaardian or, you know, like Wittgensteinian argument that it's like the one title I'm working with is like all too human, how like we won't get, you know, it has a long subtitle right now. It's like how we'll only get the most out of our digital tools when we stop running away from ourselves. And my point is that, like, yeah, I think that's right. We're just, like, I think we're constantly craving method, you know, to deal with being us and being, like, dealing with suffering and all the problems of human life. And I think all through history, and, you know, religious gurus fit this mold, people have been offering us solutions to our condition. And now it's, like, consultants and, you know, pop psychology gurus and psychiatrists and all these people they come along and we really want to believe there's some kind of solution. We'll pay money to like, you know, get the solution to life, but it's just like, not, that's not what the, is going on here. And we just need to face up to that. Yeah. The, I guess the way I look at it is uh, I don't think there's any, I don't think there is a solution to life in terms of, you know, being a good person and being a happy person. I mean, there are, I believe there are good, happy people, but yeah. there's not, there's not a formula. Yeah. It might just be, you know, luck of the draw. Exactly. Uh, and I don't believe there's an answer to the riddle of existence. You know, why are we here at all? Yeah. But I still, I, I still compulsively seek those answers that I don't think exactly. Exist. I think that's what Wittgenstein says. Is that's our problem is that we keep going looking. We're just, we crave that, you know, we crave those solutions. And even when we remind ourselves, we have this conversation like you and me, Right now, we're saying there is no such thing. In an hour, Lee and John will be looking like on the line for like some new like meditation technique or something. You know, it's like it's just so deeply in us. Yeah. It also is a career path. I mean, it's pretty. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you can, you know, you say life is meaningless. There is no answer, and then you can monetize that. Totally, that's my plan. I just I I was gonna say something else a second ago and it just slipped my mind, but yeah, something along exactly these lines. Yes, searching yeah. for searching for something even when you realize that it doesn't exist. Um, yeah. Okay, man. That's that's yeah. that's uh, that's the traditional cutoff here. So cool. uh, yeah, now I miss you even more. Um, I miss you too, man. I love our chats. But it was really um, catching up. Yeah. That would be fun maybe sometime down the road. I'll send you some other stuff about um, AI, for instance. Maybe we can just chat about, like, AI hype at some point. Absolutely. And uh, your new your new book sounds really interesting. Uh, so keep me posted on uh, progress of that. You're, you're writing this by yourself. This isn't with, yeah. uh, with Russell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right, buddy.